0: We're so happy to be having this event. Um, I have uh, introduced um, Adelie Begat and Michelle T. many times um, over the years. It's always been a pleasure. We know that Michelle has written many, many books, many, many, like a thousand books, right, Michelle? (laughs) You've written like a thousand books. Um, Ali Bagan, of course, is is also um, a well-respected, well-established author and television writer. Um, And uh, we're so happy to be here to celebrate Beth Pickens. (laughs) I had the pleasure of uh, meeting all three of them and spending time with them at a queer retreat retreat in Mexico. Um, I was just telling somebody that Beth uh, was the, uh, the oil of this machine. She just kept things rocking and rolling. She made sure things were happening and when everything was on time. And we're so happy uh, to be here to honor and celebrate her. Beth Pickens is a Los Angeles-based consultant for artists and arts organizations. She provides a career consult- consultation as well as grant writing and fundraising assistance to uh, clients across Los Angeles. Um, also, want to put out there, if you are a WCCW uh, member, uh, you do get a 10% discount. Um, so just make sure you let us know that at the counter before you buy your book, okay? So uh, we are a sponsor of that organization, so please, um, Let us know. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michelle, Allie, and Beth.
1: We're here to roast Beth Pickens. (laughs) Did they not give you a microphone? You don't, we'll talk to you. We've got this, don't worry. Good job with your book though. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to being a published author where you get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these, this is a very good looking crowd. It really is. Um, I have to take all of your pictures for Beth, Ooh. okay? <laughs> this is <one> very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a portrait studio in the back. Hey everybody! I'm going to talk to you. are going to say, hi, Beth. Oh, yeah, i got to go. Oh, my God. Okay, one, two, three. Hi, Beth. <laughs> so great. Should we do some fun facts about Beth
2: Pickens? Yeah. Um, Beth is
1: a Capricorn, which, if you know her at all, you probably, you probably already know that. Because um, she's so Capricornian. Um, Beth Pickens saved um, my literary organization in San Francisco. Um, that's Many years ago I was running a literary organization that still exists and it's very robust. It's called Radar Productions and it's amazing. But um, as a you know a writer and not a business person, I started this nonprofit and then once the grants started to come in, it was amazing, but I didn't know what to do because there's paperwork attached to grants which is <laughs> terrifying. And so I almost just threw the whole thing in the garbage even though it was changing my life for the better and my mentor said hire Beth Pickens, pay her $25 an hour and I said okay and I did, I hired Beth Pickens and I paid her $25 an hour and she saved Radar Productions and she took it from the sort of like DIY I'm terrified of money nobody cares about me mentality um, we're just going to do things sort of like in the gutter um, and she kind of polished us up and got people to give us more money and put us up in hotels when we traveled and everyone's life changed so there's something it's true, Beth Dickens is the oil of the
3: machine. Michelle, me and Beth all ran a, a retreat in Mexico for, how many years was it?
2: Five,
3: five So six years uh, that we raised money to bring queer artists to Mexico to work on their books for two weeks out of the year, and um, also to give us a way to bring home feral animals. <laughs> um, and we served over 60, 60 writers, I think, during that time, and um, rescued three cats and two dogs, I think, um, and ate a lot of ice cream. Um, I my favorite, Beth made ceviche. Yeah, Beth made Beth ceviche. for
1: everybody and made sure everyone got their plane on time yeah. and yeah. picked up at the airport. Yeah. It right? wasn't yeah, easy. Um, we didn't help. We didn't help. Um... My
3: favorite Beth Pickens fact was a personal story. She told me when she was little, she always wanted an American Girl doll. But because of your sad family, you didn't get one.
1: And um,
3: Beth would sit in her room and make invoices for how much it would cost to get the dolls, right? But but, listen, I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you. But what my point is, is that she's... <laughs> always been thinking about fundraising.
2: Um, go ahead. And... <laughs> I, I'm gonna introduce myself. Hello, everyone. My name is. <laughs> I wrote this book. <laughs> your art will save your life. Um, and I want to thank Skylight Books so much. This is my neighborhood bookstore. I am a proud member. I've always been member since we moved here. I encourage you all to get memberships tonight because I care about fundraising. Um, And I'm so, this is my first actual author event. This is my first reading. And I couldn't be more proud that it is here at Skylight. Thank you, Jen Witte. Thank you, Noel. Thank you, Skylight. Thanks for being here and being open. What is more important than a bookstore? I love bookstores. And thank you, Michelle T. and Ali Liebigat. I mean, you're thanked many times in the book, but I will say it again. Because this book wouldn't have happened without all of our working together making that queer writer's retreat happen. That was so much of what I do now professionally is because of that experience. And a lot of you know me, but for all the strangers here, let me tell you a little bit about what this book is why you're here. So I've written... Uh, essentially a self-help book and love letter to artists and writers because you're my favorite people I, I see a lot of artists out here tonight um, and after the election happened you know which one I mean um, <laughs> I'll be talking about it in my reading but things things were really hard for a lot of my artist clients and so I wanted to use my skill set to provide a set of tools for artists working in these times so that they can be engaged in their communities and still have their creative practice. Because a lot of artists thought, well I can't do both, that, that seems impossible. So I think what we're gonna do is, I'm gonna read a little bit from it, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're gonna, you're gonna ask some questions, we're gonna do some other things. Does <laughs> that sound all right? <laughs> so I'm gonna start with reading the actual opening love letter. Dear Artists, You are holding my love letter to artists. Artists are the most important people in my life, and I need you to stay active and creatively engaged through this and all political shifts. Your art will help you navigate the world, and it will light the way for others. I have dedicated my professional and volunteer life to artists, especially those who are marginalized in the dominant art worlds. Women, queer and transgender artists, artists of color, low-income artists, emerging artists, dropouts artists who never sell anything, and brilliant weirdos who make work that defies commercial understanding. I want artists to reflect the world back at me, interpret it, and create new worlds for me to imagine. After the 2016 presidential election, many of my artist clients said things like, maybe I should quit making art now, it's kind of selfish for me to focus on my art now, or I should help people in a more effective way. These are expected grief responses to the shock and horror of our times, but I beseech you, do not stop making art. I need it profoundly. We all do. Anytime you feel overwhelmed by humanity's impact on people, animals, and the planet, or really anytime you think you cannot leave the house because the world is too hard, I want you to think about the art, performance, music, books, and films that have made you want to be alive. Think about how those artists, like you, probably felt overwhelmed by their lives and the times they were living in, but they made the thing anyway. Your future audiences need your work, so you need to make it. I focus on history for perspective. This helps me take strategic next steps. I read about artists making work during war, and times of violence, and despite systemic neglect. For example, I like to look to artists living during the AIDS pandemic years. I read a lot about the role artists and activists played in changing science, research, policy, and culture. The AIDS movement was largely orchestrated by artists and activists, many of whom were young and watching their friends die. Today, we're in a different time and place. Depending on who you are, the Trump administration may not impact you drastically, or you may encounter devastating, life-changing experiences. We don't know what will happen, but historically, under oppressive regimes and fascist governments, It is the brave and creative ones who lead, who solve problems, and who incite, inspire, organize, comfort, satirize, and reflect. You are not alone. You have what you need for your life, for art, and for justice. Stay with your creative path, trust your vision, and know that your contributions will matter to someone else.
1: Thank you. Um, since you have had your your practice going for, you know, it's been like over a year since the horrible election, have you seen any changes in the clients, that you, in the artists that you work with that were feeling this level of despair a year and a half ago?
2: I think with my artist clients, as they sort of resumed their lives after the initial sort of shock. Um, they had to return to their practices. And some people made big changes to their practices because they wanted their work to have more overt political content or they wanted it to reach specific audiences. But the artists who I see who are the most sort of satisfied with life are artists who, no matter what, they return to their practice and they make sure that that is a core part of their lives.
3: I have a question. I know that you're... I have a question. I wanted to have like a little, like I was going to represent Fox News all night sitting here. I was going to ask the hard hitting questions. Why do we need art? But I'm not going to do that. Um, why... Okay, I know that you're trained as a counseling psychologist, therapist person. Um, what, do, what issues do artists have And how do you treat them in your counseling? How does that vary from just regular non-artist people? What issues do we face?
2: (laughs) (laughs) How crazy are we? So many issues. (laughs) Artists have a lot of issues. No, I, I do think that people who are wired to make art, sort of my working definition of artists, unlike me and the rest of the world who are not artists, is that artists have to be creatively engaged in order to be alive My experience of artists is that they are people who, a way they communicate, stay grounded, and take care of themselves is their creative practice. And that's not true for non-artists. Like I don't have to be creatively engaged to be alive. I do lots of other things and take care of myself, but that's not one of them. And I think artists don't necessarily realize that that's it's, it's something different about them. It's, it's a special thing that's about them. And I think one of the challenges that comes with that gift is a kind of a, a sensitivity to the world and an observation that might be heightened compared to other people. Um, and so specific, artists, specific issues that artists face really clearly is we live in an art negative culture. Our country spends very little money on the arts. Even our state spends only about 10 cents per person per year on the arts. Um, the data about what our country does versus other countries globally is really terrifying about how much money our country spends on the arts. And if, if you artists probably notice this and experience this, especially if you have peers working in other countries that are better funded. So that's a big one. Also, part of the art negativity or hostility is the belief that art isn't a real job, that it's not a vocation, that it's not a labor, that somehow it's a hobby and not worthy of time and dedication and student loans and all the other things. And It's a confusing job it's not being an artist is not a job that comes with a clear sort of pay scale or entry in or uh, growth whereas if you were an accountant or a salesperson there might be a clear structure to your job but that's not true for artists and you know for people who have other kinds of vocations if they didn't do that vocation they might find meaning other where other places and other parts of their lives but for artists if they stop making art in my experience their life quality declines
1: It's really true. It's so nice to feel understood by Beth Pickens. Beth Pickens! um, One thing that was really cool when we went to the, um, when Beth was running the the Radar Lab retreat, um, she coined the term, like, spooky rider face. Because when we were all done working, we'd all sort of drift out. Mm -hmm. Like weird zombies. Just sort of like, she'd be like, why are you guys so spooky? (laughs) <laughs> Are there other observations that you've had about us artists? Like I don't know, I guess this isn't, this isn't the best question. Maybe a better question would be, um, there's that part in your, in your book where you're talking about how important anger is, and then the next passage you're talking about how important joy is, and I'm, I'm thinking like that, is like what is tormenting so many of us right now is that like it's hard to know like, Ugh, I should be really angry. Oh, but that feels really toxic. It's hard to access joy. Oh, I'm I'm too happy. I'm not paying attention. Like, what do you, do you do anything
2: or do you have tips on how to balance your anger to joy ratio? <laughs>
0: um,
2: I mean, I take in a lot of art to facilitate anger, to facilitate feelings. Because as a Capricorn, it's not easy for me to locate feelings. <laughs> but art helps me do that. That's sort of one of the magical qualities of all kinds of art: is it facilitates feelings, it moves feelings through. So a thing I do a lot is I rely heavily on art to feel, to access anger, to access joy and humor. Um, I write about that if I, if I can read that passage if that would be something you'd like. I would love that. <laughs> Um, so I have a section in this book called Election Aftermath Post-Election Illuminations and, um, and these came from, so after the election I wrote this pamphlet called Making Art During Fascism and uh, that pamphlet grew into this book as did some self-help writing that I had been doing before the election and I was having a weekly free drop-in drop group at the Women's Center for Creative Work where artists and anybody else who was feeling really lost could come and sort of talk about their experience of the week and what was happening politically. Because you remember, right after the inauguration, it was like thing after thing after thing, it was just rapid fire. And it it felt like um, it felt like emotional bullets hitting everyone I knew, and people were really stunned and overwhelmed with their rage. And rage is an exhausting experience. You can only your body and mind can only handle it for so long, and then you collapse. You can't sustain that feeling for very long. It has to transform into something. So at this group, artists would come and sort of talk about what was going on for them, how they felt about it, and what they wanted to do about it in a realistic way. And one day, some artists brought up the concept of feeling guilty about having fun, and so that's what this section came out of. You still need joy. The Sunday after the first Muslim ban I led my weekly gathering for artists and activists. I asked everyone to introduce themselves and identify a question they wanted to bring to the group. One woman in attendance asked if it was wrong to have fun now. She explained that she'd been out to dinner with her friends a few hours after the executive order was announced. She was laughing and enjoying herself when suddenly she was overcome with guilt, awash with shame. What right did she have, she wondered, to have a great time while the rest of the world seemed to be falling apart. We all nodded emphatically, navigating the mindfuck of having a good life while the new administration puts entire entire populations at risk, this was a deeply human and very much shared experience. So we talked about it. I asked the group if anyone had similar experiences and everyone raised their hands. It seemed we all wondered how to balance the continuity of our lives, goals, and dreams while keeping on top of Trump's disastrous first 100 days. A few key ideas emerged from this vital conversation that helped me on a daily basis. One life to live, it's not just a soap opera. As far as we concretely know, we just get this one life, a limited time on the planet, and it's not clear how long our individual spans will be. No matter what's happening in the world, in your community, in your household, it's up to you to move ever toward a joy-filled and satisfying life, whatever that means to you. Why? because this is your life and you cannot put it on hold because of assholes in power. Assholes, after all, have always been in power. (laughs) (laughs) Anger isn't action and misery isn't solidarity. This is a concept I must relearn every week because it's easy to forget. The social inequities, humanitarian crises, and environmental decline of our times make me angry and very unhappy. This is a normal reaction to circumstances around me. I have to feel and express feelings like sadness, anger, and disgust. I also want to understand that those feelings aren't actions and do not replace outward activism nor do they give me the same positive benefits of working with community. In a similar way, feeling unhappy and outraged is not necessarily solidarity. There are outward expressions that can contribute to a larger media-based or in real life sense of solidarity. But simply staying unhappy because I believe others feel that way is not being politically aligned with them. Asking how I can be of service and then taking those action steps is a concrete way to be in solidarity. Anger is real and necessary and it can be transformed into fuel. I want you to feel and express anger in safe and effective ways. So many people are discouraged from and punished for expressing anger. Women and black people come immediately to mind. But feeling the full range of your feelings and expressing them in ways that support your overall well-being are, I believe, vital human rights. Anger is an inevitable and natural response to injustice. So stuffing it down and shaming yourself for being angry is not realistic. Anger produces energy in the body that can be used in your artwork, in exercise and movement, in committing to outward action supporting vulnerable communities. Finally, a joy-filled life leads to sustainability and social justice work. Burnout is real and it is a bummer. When we overcommit, say yes when we mean no, resent the people we aim to collaborate with or serve, and neglect other parts of our lives, we are on a fast track to burnout. In simple, concrete terms, this is a waste that shortchanges communities. If you burn out quickly and early, you will be kept from important future work. It's a bad model for your friends and collaborators too, and an epidemic of burnout can spread through activist circles. Supporting healthy, balanced activism in your social, circle, social circles helps reduce burnout. Infusing a lot of fun and joy into your life will also reduce burnout. Fun is not an option, is not optional, and joy is not a luxury. This is actual anti-burnout strategy. That's all. I
3: You we were just writing that down the hall in our house and I had no idea, watching, them, watching the Mets play baseball. Meanwhile, what are you doing, you know? Um, I have a question about,
1: I, my favorite part
3: of the love letter is when you address artists who don't sell work, or artists who, we have this I think it's so confusing as a writer or an artist in our society to and that Los Angeles is such a special place for this um, but the idea that if someone doesn't buy the work or if someone doesn't approve the work though, even as I've been writing for like 30 years which is crazy like I've had thoughts and my life. Like, am I just a crazy person who managed to get my journal published? Or am I a writer, even though I've done this for 30 years? You know what I mean? So, I guess my question is how do you... What are the tools and strategies for artists and writers who are not, especially marginalized artists who suffer under capitalism, you know? um, What are our tools to to keep moving forward, um, despite like maybe outside help—is any of that clear? Should I not be a writer?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Allie hasn't actually read the book yet, so she's doing a really good job. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> I think she read it. Um, so I—there is no correlation between the value of your work and its merit and external resources. There's no correlation between the two. Dumb shit all the time ascends. We know, we see popular culture, and a lot of it's really bad. And really brilliant things go neglected and never funded. You said that. Look around you, lots of dumb shit gets money and fame. It's true. (laughs) So there's no correlation. And, that's, and sometimes there's justice and really incredible work really ascends and the artist gets lots of resources and support and the work gets to a lot of people. And that doesn't always happen. So that's on the table. But the thing I would say that I say to artists all the time, and it's in the book, is that artists have three basic needs in my mind. One is you have to keep making your work. No matter what else, you have to keep making your work. You have to be in your practice. You will become unwell if you stop making your work. Um, the second is you need a community of artists who also want to be making work and want to have a creative career. And then the third is you have to take in lots of art. You have to like be in the world of art. It's part of your job to see like what's happening in the world, who's doing what in what form, and to be familiar with it. Um, so those are, it's like a stool, like the kind you sit on.
1: <laughs> and um,
2: and no, So whenever I first meet a, a new client, one of the things I do is identify Are those things in balance for the person? Are they making work? If not, that's the first thing we do is we got to get them back in the studio, back to writing, back to making things, with no pressure or expectation of what happens with the thing. Um, And then sort of survey their community and whether they need to increase it. Do they need more artists in their lives? Are they isolated? Most artists and writers are isolated. (laughs) That's a very common experience. And then the third is like being out in the world and and seeing work. Um, Did that answer your weird question?
1: (laughs) when you first started um, doing promotions for this book you, you started doing this great thing on Instagram where you would post art that really moved you and talk about the impact it had on you, it was so inspiring um, and, and it made me want to see that art and, and it made me think differently you know, or about the art that I've seen is there anything,
2: what have you seen lately? is there anything that's like really jazzing you right now? Yeah. Um, oh my god, so much, we're so lucky to be in Los Angeles, like this is The U.S. epicenter of contemporary art right now—it's incredible the number of places to see work for free too. Um, And artists—you know—there was already a huge thriving community here, and then the past ten years we've had this huge influx of more artists. So we're really lucky to be here, and it's really easy to go see work. And I used to live in a in mid Missouri in a place where if I wanted to see contemporary queer art, I had to bring it to town, which is how we met, (laughs) and that's how we met too. was bringing art to town so I could have it in my life Um, something I just saw well something I go to every month that really fuels me is um, Dynasty Handbag's Weirdo Night at Zebulon monthly weird performance night which is uh, Dynasty Handbag is a performance persona of the artist James Cameron and um she you both performed at weirdo night and every month i go to this and i've cried at like the past few because it's one of the places that facilitates emotion for me even though it's all comedic weird performance but it's like i'm in this room and before the show starts jibs always plays like really obscure videos like uh, like weird, like Lilliput's entire catalog, and then every video by Aaliyah and old Prince <laughs> videos you've never seen. There's really great videos playing really big before the show starts. It just like sets the mood. So I'm seeing like all these old videos I haven't seen for a long time or I've never seen. And then every month she brings in uh, four performers in different performance and multimedia performance who do. Really weird wonderful things that are usually dealing with their sort of anger and outrage at the world in really absurd ways and the crowd is like smoking hot and it's really packed and it just feels like oh I'm with my people and I'm getting the world reflected back at me for an hour and a half and it's magical. That's something I highly recommend. It's the best $15 you'll spend every month. True. Gosh.
3: Um, I was just thinking about that Prince video I was seeing last time there. I have another question about <laughs> artists and the nuts and bolts of making a living. So, oh, um, what I know that this sort of about the old thing, you know, that that narrative that like, oh, if I don't make my living making art, that I'm not. I'm not an artist. Or if I'm not, um, or maybe I have to write a, I remember I had to write this article for Self Magazine once for money. And um, remember? And um, they had, um, I was like, what was, it was $5,000. I had to do it. And, um, but I didn't know what was in Self Magazine. And I picked it up and the article in there was about this woman getting, um, Labia reduction surgery, and I thought, geez, what am I gonna offer? Self Magazine, you know? Um, but how do um, uh, my question is, how do I need laser labia reduction? Uh, we talked about this at home, you're right. Um, but no, my question is, um, how do you know, like, what percentage of your life to spend? making a living when you're someone who has to make a living, you don't have a net, you know what I mean? And, like, and balance and that question of like, oh, okay, now I'm writing a book to pay my bills. And do you have any advice for writers to, to kind of be in touch or artists to be in touch with their internal compass while also having to feed
2: themselves? Yeah. You, you know, most artists, if we just like drew a big circle around every artist and writer and every discipline, most of them don't make all of their money from their art. Most of them make a fraction or none of their income through their art, and that's a reality. I think there's strategies. So with every artist, what we would do is sort of look at where they are right now financially. Um, I do do a lot of personal finance work with artists. Like I said, I think that'll be the next book because I love talking about money and uh, and I help the artists sort of identify like reality-based thinking about their own income and expenses and where they are in their life and their unique situation regarding family and how they live and where they live but the reality is most artists have to work jobby jobs jobs that are not their work maybe not even using their creative skill, and that's fine, that's okay it, it, it's not necessarily better this is going to sound crazy but go with me on this it's not necessarily better to have ex- open expanses of time I write about this in the book. A lot of my clients who go on retreats, for example, will have an emergency session with me when they get to the retreat because they will lose their shit once they get there because they're not used to having this open expanse of time and it's hard to transition into it and that suddenly the pressure really feels big that, well, I've only got this two weeks or I've only got this six weeks or I've only got these three months. I've I've got to produce everything right now. Um, So working is not... Having jobby jobs for money to take care of yourself, that's not, uh, you're not being condemned to something bad. I think actually the schedule can be useful. I watched you when you've had open expanses of time. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched many artists with open expanses of time, this really great. but. I think there are strategies any artist can take to move their work toward yielding some income, and that's a long game. It's not something that happens. It's a hard question to answer like for all artists because every discipline is so different, and some disciplines naturally have things that you can sell, like objects or skills, and others are really challenging. But I think sort of being acceptance that even if your work never makes you money, you are going to have to make it the rest of your life. It's a part of your life path as an artist. That is a thing you're going to be doing. And if the artist can accept that and be an acceptance that I'm just going to be making art forever, it might make me some money, it might not. But no matter what, I'm still going to be doing it, then some peace will come. It's really hard in capitalism for artists. Maybe that'll be the title of the next book. (laughs)
1: I have a really important question that came from reading your book and it is, um, do you really think I should try acting even though I'm 47 years old and have ruined my body with tattoos? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yes! (laughs) Yes, you should do all of the things, right? And you're actually such a good teacher for that, I've learned that from you, because I am wired to do none of the things ever, but like you're a risk-taking person who wants to have all of the experiences, so yes, of course you should act. Even though, we've all ruined our bodies with tattoos. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, most of Los Angeles has. Uh, You should do all of the things. So all of you, whatever things you're thinking that sound crazy, you have to do it. You don't know what that, what seed that will plant.
1: Um, Do any of you guys have a question for Beth Pickens?
2: You don't even have to pay her for it right now. Though
1: you should buy her book. (laughs) We'll just give you a minute. Could you you talk about... um, Said starting that retreat sort of saved your life. Could you talk about your experience of uh, coming fully into this this place in your life?
2: Uh, I wrote about it. Maybe I could. That would be a good thing to close with. Is is reading this little section that I was going to read the personal essay about why art's important to me by Beth (laughs) Pickens. I'll read that about that. Okay. The realization that art could first save and then expand my life came when I was a teenager in a troubled home referenced by Ali Liebhagad Life (laughs) with my mentally ill mother and alcoholic father near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania before the internet was difficult A smart queer feminist without the language to talk about any of it let alone identify with those lineages I was profoundly depressed and mostly miserable I ached for art and counterculture but those were really hard to come by in small rust belt towns in the 90s I read books, made zines, bought 45s, and ordered sub-pop record catalogs out of the back of Spin Magazine, which at the time was a wonderland filled with mysterious ads for things like the anarchist cookbook. Then in 1994, the Andy Warhol Museum opened in downtown Pittsburgh. I was 15 and fortunate to be present for the museum's midnight opening thanks to my neighbor Carol, an artist and public school art teacher who saw in me a deep need for connection to something beyond what was available in my sad town and busted school. Something new was born in me that night as I wandered the museum from top to bottom, looking at Warhol's iconic and more obscure works, obsessively combing through the gift shop, gawking at the drag queens and kindred freaks clamoring to explore this unfathomable building. That museum opening uncovered an intuition stifled by my surroundings. There would be places I belonged and there were communities I must find. Back then I could barely understand, let alone articulate, what was so important to me about the museum. But now I know it clearly. It was a history and lineage of queer art. Andy Warhol made an exciting life for himself despite his impoverished Pittsburgh upbringing. I saw color and humor and possibilities for a better future. I saw strange people who made their own world and it looked wild and limitless. I saw political discourse and tongue-in-cheek paintings, sculptures, and drawings. The factory, music, art, women, style, humor, sex, and outrageous drugs. I just had to turn 18 and move away. That became reason enough to live through my remaining years in high school. It's been more than 20 years since that night at the Andy Warhol Museum, and since then I have consistently heavily relied on artists to make me want to be in the world at its worst and embody a deeper experience of life at its best. I'll start right there. <laughs> Those chickens,
3: everyone!
0: actually so if one wants to access your services how would one reach out to you um, how would one go about asking for your rates
2: have, yeah i mean good luck i never take clients which is why I wrote this book. because i i don't have i very rarely take on new clients and so one of the reasons why i wrote this book and i do a lot of workshops is because of that fact but you can write to me through my website. You can send me questions on my Instagram, at Beth Pickens Consulting. I answer them there. Artists write to me all the time from all over the world with lots of questions and I answer them. Um, but yeah, I'm very reachable, even if I can't take you on as my client right now. Okay, so,
0: terrific. Um, but I do want to point out, you do have a chance to maybe ask her a question or 2 in the signing line. So <laughs> feel free to do that. Uh, We have copies of her book available at the register, as well as books by Michelle and Allie, so feel free to um, buy them also. Um, They'll be over here and um, and sign away. Uh, What we'll do is, if you are a um, Friend with Benefit, which is a membership program. If you are a member, if you are a member um, of Scott Bookstore, you uh, one of the joys you get to have is to get your book signed. So uh, sign first. So please make sure to line up against social science, um, and then when you uh, when you um, want to get your book signed um, by our wonderful authors here, please line up against travel and travel writing. Okay. So thank you all very much for coming and enjoy the story.